And again, starting with the sound check. Do I got you all? Everybody's on board? Good. So as James said last night, um, this is a very uh, special time of the retreat. We're at a point where those of you who have stayed for one month are on the cusp of changing the format of your Dharma practice to be much more expansive. And those of you who are here for two months, you're in the deep heart of your um, practice of seclusion, practice of deep presence, of refinement. But there will be sort of a change for everybody uh, around this halfway point. It's also a very special night because it's the second time I've worn my my favorite shirt. (laughs) So it's my gift to you all. It's an unconscious relationship to it that it used to be my favorite shirt I wore a lot. And then slowly I wore it less and less because I am afraid of its impermanence. (laughs) But it shouldn't just wither away in a closet. So it comes out one more time. So I'd like to share a a story. Um, When I had been in Burma for a year, um, I'd practiced at two different monasteries and deeply falling in love with the Dharma, love the monastic life. Um, it's just a, a little bit of a tight shoe in some areas, rubbed a little bit, but for the most part it aligned with my values and there was a lot of grace in it, a lot of challenge, but every challenging day felt noble as opposed to just sort of, I feel off track. It's like I don't feel off track, I just feel like this is a really difficult day, but it's a difficult Dharma day. And then it would pass, and then it would come back, and then it would pass. Um, But I can say that there really wasn't any sense of that year that there was a wasted hour. Um, So even when it was hard, it was clearly part of my Dharma path. But it was actually a year into that practice. I was uh, just turned 31. It's pretty healthy. I did a lot of outdoor heroic activity and had a fairly healthy body. But it's actually a year into Dharma practice that my body and my nervous system went haywire and that became uh, the beginning of my chronic fatigue. So I practiced on for three or four more months to see if I could work it out, but um, I started losing a lot of weight and thought I could you know, just nobly die on the path and that would be you know, other monks have done it, so. <laughs> and I started to get a sense of, like, yeah, that may actually be a missed opportunity of this rebirth. And why roll the dice, and who knows where I'll end up. But if I can extend this life's opportunity, I got a lot of Dharma flow going and may not actually be at the end of my tether in terms of uh, my health. So I decided to go back home and. To go back home, I realized I, at that point I should disrobe. Other people have tried to go back home and stay in robes. But if you don't have a community around you, the form of being monastic doesn't make a lot of sense. It's actually a social relationship to be ordained. It looks like you're stepping out of society, but the whole container of being a monastic, even if you're up in the woods or up in a cave somewhere, there's still built in a built-in relational field to the people who support you. So you can't actually tear yourself out of society. Being ordained is a role within society that allows for seclusion, but there's also constantly a dance with uh, the greater society. And I knew I couldn't do that in the States, and it would come with so many compromises. And part of the reason I was going home also was to talk to my family because I had kind of just gone off because I could and they didn't really understand it but at that point in my life I didn't need them to and I realized that was kind of hard on them to see one of their family members get interested in something they couldn't comprehend and then go off and then also get ill over there and 
So if I was going home, it made sense not to go back as a monk. Um, but I thought about it for a long time and asked people about if they had ever done it. And, and also with my illness, I thought that's going to be really hard to get my needs met and stay ordained. Um, I don't have a community that I'm connected to back in the States. So this was slowly coming ter to terms with the decision to disrobe. And in this large monastery, there were uh, uh, three Sri Lankan monks. And uh, I had a lot of contact with two of them, but one of them was a very revered uh, Sri Lankan monk, uh, very important to the country of Sri Lanka. And he was just much more quiet and kind of contained. Um, he didn't speak any English. So when they heard that I was going to disrobe, it's one of the roles of being a monastic is to talk monastics out of disrobing. <laughs> and you, you can spend a lot of time talking monastics out of disrobing because doubts come and you kind of think you're plateauing and is this really what you want to do with your one precious life? And doubts come until you have enough momentum that you can just see doubt for doubt. But uh, it's always there as a possibility of disrobing. And so just to make sure somebody doesn't disrobe because they're in a lull or having too many hard days in a row, other monastics talk you out of it. And one of the things they say is like, it's a cruel world out there. <laughs> Ooh, baby, baby, it's a wild world. It's hard to get by just upon a smile. And I kind of had that intuition too, but felt the momentum was taking me in the direction of disrobing. And in Burma, you can... Uh, ordain many times in your life. So I thought I'll disrobe and come back and reordain. That I think that's the cleanest way to do it. But then they said, okay, since we can't talk you out of it, please talk to our teacher. He's very wise. And I think they were hoping he could talk me out of it. Because I remember when they translated what he said, they looked a little uh, like it was new information for them. So I got to go meet him a very calm, unassuming person never would have known that he was as uh, important as he was to the country of Sri Lanka. And they just discussed what happened. I translated, he asked a few questions just to get oriented. And he said, my advice to you is to take off your outer robe, but not to take off your inner robe. And I, I still weep when I hear the compassion in that and the recognition of, he wasn't doubting my wisdom to need to disrobe, but he was honoring the fact that my heart had fallen in love with the tradition. And I, I, that still reverberates with me. I don't feel like I disrobed in my heart. I don't follow the same monastic guidelines, but what got so affirmed by that year in Burma, um, has only grown. I keep the fire going. Uh, it's so important, but I took off the outer robe. And there's a very funny thing that since you give up everything when you ordain, then when you disrobe, you can keep some of your ordination garments, uh, just as a reminder, and the Burmese uh, will do that. And so actually this was the robe I had as a monk. This is my outer robe. And it's actually the oldest thing I have because I gave up everything before it. And I came back into the lay life and I kept it. So geologically, this is uh, the oldest thing that I own. But it's not permanent. It can't be. So I'm, I'm not clinging to it. But I do hold symbolically for the the inner robe and a, a tangible piece of what it was like to be a monastic. And so some of you are on this cusp of heading out into the world with some joy, some relief, some concerns. I, and I, I remember that. I remember many times being on long retreat and coming to this evening beforehand and or in being a longer-term student and then watching other people go home and like feeling my own heartstrings like maybe this is a good time to go home and <laughs> yeah, maybe I should cycle out and come back later and that those questions get asked but then you have to kind of feel your own commitment to keep going 
but eventually also uh, people go home because retreat isn't a, meant to be a permanent way of life. There are very few people uh, where the retreat modality is the perfect modality for them for their whole life. For some people, for many people, it's just the time of life. And when you live in a country like uh, Burma, Myanmar, uh, retreat plays a role in a much larger Dharma context. And so the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path, and there are eight folds of the Eightfold Path. Um, there are a lot of talks on the Eightfold Path, but it's not meant to be all guiding us to more cushioned time and more formal walking meditation time, uh, and then dissolving our relationship to the world. This modality plays a role in a larger field of waking up. And at some point, everybody has to take their practice into the world. And if you were this serious about your practice, uh, you would maybe temporarily ordain. Uh, you'd be encouraged in a country like Burma. And then every morning, you'd walk into town to collect food for the day. So you'd have a daily relationship with the local villages. And that was amazing because when I ordained, to actually walk through the village with trucks going by and people having tea and selling food and interacting and kids playing soccer, and we'd walk slowly through that. And it was a very beautiful, like, sewing, you know, go deep into the monastery, come back out, go deep into the monastery, come back out. And then I got connect to the sense that my practice was being supported by local people and they weren't invisible. I could see the people who had supported us. And there was a little sense, is my practice worthy of their, like they have very uh, generous donations and am I using this day on their generosity as best I can? And then you can definitely overdo it and then come back around and uh, have a more patient relationship to practice. But to actually meet the people who are supporting you and have that be a, uh, an actual bond uh, from very uh, poor subsistence uh, rubber tree farmers um, to people you'd walk through a little bit more of the uh, town center. And then there'd be local people that had prospered in their business and they'd have a slightly larger house. They'd all invite the monastics in. But uh, you'd interact with sort of all rungs of society around the monastery. That's a little bit what's missing from our Western approach to Dharma. And it's taken time to catch up with it. So the first thing that was brought over in this Theravadan tradition was the power of silent retreat, and it's incredibly powerful. But uh, there wasn't a bringing over of Burmese culture to try to surround the retreat. And what that can do for us is it can give us a warped view of what's really important about Dharma practice because when we're on retreat, it's so clearly Dharma. Even your worst sit after a while is, uh, I've really got suffering. <laughs> and then there's a sense like, well, when I leave, <clears throat> the Dharma seems to evaporate. Like it's not reinforced enough so then it can reinforce a sense like I have to wait till my next retreat to get my next dose of deep dharma and with enough momentum we realize it has to be a 365 days a year practice and it's very hard to do it by yourself so joining communities having even one dharma friend you feel dharma that can't really be felt on retreat as much as that seeing another soul swimming against the stream of uh, ordinary culture, but being in the stream of the dharma and feeling those two poles. Um, so even one dharma friend makes all the difference. It's very hard to see the dharma actually just by yourself. On retreat, you can see a lot of it. But there's something happens when you're in a collective experience of people sharing those values. And then you get to see the Dharma inside and outside, and both inside and outside. And in a country like Burma, you get to do that. Um, most people will ordain once in their life as a 
as a maybe nine-year-old. And then again, uh, before they settle into family life, maybe they'll go to a monastery for a time, bring their family to a monastery. We have a a family retreat here, which is much like that. Don used to run that, and other people have participated in it. And then again, in, in sort of retirement years, you take care of your family, but if your family has the space, um, elder people come and stay in the monastery. So there's a lot of in the monastery and out. And now we have to do that on our own. Um, and that is daunting if you're going back to a household that is full of good people, but they're not necessarily cultivating the Dharma that we're cultivating, or maybe there's something antagonistic uh, in your home life, in your work life, and then we have to sort that out. Um, I came back from Burma, it was in the spring, <clears throat> and about a month after I got back was the, um, the Columbine shooting. And so I was coming back into Western culture and wondering how Western culture was doing and also geologically, I missed the whole Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing. It was, I was just in silence for that whole time. So I emerged and everybody was so worn out by it. Um, and I just came back when Titanic was out. So there's like certain things that really punctuated uh, dominant culture at that time. But the Columbine shootings were, was just like, oh my God, what a madhouse. What is happening? So you don't come back out into Dharma culture and you don't want to betray yourself, but then it's hard to integrate with others. Um, So again, it's good if you belong to a Sangha and that can be very supportive. But you also have to trust your practice and you have to practice your practice, but off retreat. And you have to learn what that looks like. So what could be Dharma practice in your daily activities well, there's some very predictable things you do every day. You eat. You probably have to wash the dishes uh, around food. You have to go get food. Um, there's taking care of your body and anything you do daily or weekly. Those can become habitual, and time is so habitual you can space out in that time and do a worldly relaxation just by disconnecting and doing it automatically. Or those can become conscious points where you can say, oh, if I do this every day, let me make that another Dharma practice. It's not just cushion time, but anytime I walk, do I have to be thinking about the things I'm thinking when I'm walking, or could this walk from here to there be a Dharma time? And it's all Dharma time, like it's all hammer time (laughs) with the right frame of mind. You can tell my age by what my reference points are. So it's all Dharma time. And it's, it's something you can't... People get fragrances of it on shorter retreats. But you all have done something that is so, uh, so life-changing. You've taken a month where being present actually was your highest priority and being aware while being present and cultivating kindness and patience And that actually was your highest uh, goal each day. You can see that, and then you can try to uh, practice that out in your daily life. But if you think retreat is where it all happens, then you're trying to uh, push this square peg down a round hole. It's like I've got to craft my life so it looks more like a retreat. And that, that could be helpful to, to borrow some from retreat. But what you have to discover is how your daily life is practice and how to see the Dharma in your daily life. And we now have uh, programs and courses that help people find the Dharma in daily life. You fall in love with it on retreat. You see that it's hard to do out in our dominant culture. And so then people take classes and do day-longs to kind of figure out how do you find the stream of the Dharma in your daily life?
So uh, one thing that's helpful is to have simplified maps that you can use in the swirl of daily life. So here we've been able to pull out very subtle nuances and those might not be so accessible in daily life. They may be over time, but sometimes just to make sure you're even on the path consciously, uh, you can use a a concise map or a condensed map. So just, I read that quote earlier where the Buddha asks his, one of his main disciples, uh, what is the stream? And Sariputta, his disciple, says the Eightfold Path is the stream. So the Eightfold Path is not here, and then the stream of the Dharma is over here. The stream of the Dharma, you're always in the stream, but if it's actively connected to one of the three trainings, the Eightfold Path, then it's consciously a part of the, the stream. And that's where we wake up to the stream by practicing the Eightfold Path. Sometimes the detail of the Eightfold Path is helpful. So I'm not going to go into uh, a whole thing on each Eightfold, but you can keep the three trainings in your mind. You, know, there's, you have to pick your lists and see which one, which one gives you traction. <laughs> I'm teetering. I almost made it through the entire retreat without using one of my most groan-worthy puns. And I knew this would happen. I would come to the end, and there would be this urge to use it and this decision to use it. So I'm going to use it. (laughs) It's just too fun not to. So the three trainings, it behooves you to use the three trainings puts little hooves on to give you traction. In daily life, it's hard to get traction, so it behooves you to practice the three trainings. Otherwise, you don't have hooves. And it's slippery out there. So for those of you who laughed, thank you. For those of you who held in your groan, it's rewarding that there even was a groan. (laughs) But onward we go. You are now behooved. It behooves you to find the map level that inspires and clarifies. And sometimes your mind is really into the details, and sometimes a simpler map is helpful. So just as Sariputta said, uh, being in the stream is to walk the eightfold path, and that is the stream. And someone who's in the stream walks the eightfold path There's also a simplification where the Eightfold Path gets described as three trainings. And uh, if you're doing one of these three trainings, you're in the Dharma stream. And the Dharma stream is just flowing towards freedom. So am I flowing towards trouble and getting bound up in life? Or am I flowing in a way where I'm generally heading uh, into a freer heart with more uh, Dharma contentment? So <clears throat> this Eightfold Path can be condensed down to three. One of the Buddha's uh, most celebrated uh, nuns was named Dhammadina. And um, uh, she, won, she was talking to her ex-husband, and she was fully awakened, and he was very close to being fully awakened, so he came and had a discussion with her that was recorded And the Buddha said, I would have said the same thing. So she says, the Noble Eightfold Path is included in the three practices. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. These are included in the category of sila. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. These are included in the category of samadhi. Wise view and wise thought or wise... Uh, intention. These are included in the category of wisdom. So as you're going through complicated swirls of life, sometimes just these three check-ins, am I ethically attuned to what's happening? Am I welcoming my heart to be streaming with beautiful qualities? 
And am I living with perspective? Is there enough perspective to be of benefit to myself and others and to uh, see harm and avoid it? So living with perspective, beautiful heart qualities and ethical actions. Those are three trainings. On retreat, we don't put as much effort into ethical action as you'll need to out in daily life. Just being this conscious and this present, it's very hard to actually cause harm. When you see harm about to happen, you have a lot of bandwidth to not do it. So you're walking, a lizard comes right in front of you and stops and might be where you've put your foot, and you don't. So, you know, great, you didn't cause harm, but you were so present that it's easy to see what's happening and start to have spaciousness enough not to cause harm. And then as Tuari mentioned, you can even feel the stream underneath harm, or you can tap into, I'm not causing any harm overtly right now, but this is the stream of mind that is the precursor of harm. I've started to dull out on people. I've started to build a case for why somebody should be poked. Uh, (laughs) This slow person could use a little prod, and this uh, sneezing person could use a cone around them. (laughs) I'm I'm fixing the world. This is the precursor of uh, violent action, violent speech. So I can see how I'm creating the case for harm. And you can intervene there. Out in daily life, things are happening so fast, and the way that we engage with daily life is so fast that you really have to uh, catch yourself from crossing over and breaking precepts that cause harm. And so the practice of the precepts become really important. When you're a practicing monastic, doing sitting and walking practice, you have 227 rules minimum, and then all the permutations of how they play out in different contexts. There's all these if this, then that, if that, then this, under even one precept. But if you're doing walking meditation and sitting meditation, all the precepts are taken care of, uh, except the important ones, like not stepping on insects while you're walking, being careful of your activity not to cause harm. But it's when you're not formally practicing that these 227 precepts become this very intricate dance in trying to remember each one under all these different conditions. And my first response was like, oh, that really hurts the mind to have that many rules to attend to. But over time, you get used to it. And then you see how this is actually helping you find Dharma streaming Uh, having beautiful heart states, being aware of where harm even begins to generate and making sure you're not crossing boundaries that are harmful or lead to harm. And so then you actually can find the stream of the Dharma out in more complex circumstances. And these rules uh, give you pause, which is another great pun. (laughs) They sort of soften the blow, but they give you traction. So these rules give you pause and it behooves you to follow them. <laughs> because otherwise, you're just sort of winging it in the swirls. Like, well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess this is what's happening. Okay, I guess I'm responding this way. Wow, that was a mistake. Wow, it's so complicated. It's like, are you, let's just start with the five precepts, or even just the first precept. Is there harm being caused? Is there greed in action? Uh, are there sensitivities in the relationship not being tracked? It's like, okay, I've covered those really coarse actions. But then you come down to these really refined details. Um, Like uh, there's one monastic rule that when you use the sauna for health, which is a health thing, you should clean up afterwards. uh, Otherwise, the next people coming in come into a messy sauna. I think, God, I've lived in so many collectives. This just sounds like... (laughs) Any, any collective you've lived in, it's like clean up the kitchen after you do it, make sure you wipe down and put your dishes away, everybody, come on. And there are rules like that. And it's like, well, that's what people do, is that it's irritating when people don't behave well in community. Please do this. And it's like, okay, there's no, there's no sauna in this particular monastery, so I can't even break that rule. But there are other rules you have to pay attention to. 
So that's one way you can practice the Dharma when you leave here, is that it, there's a big swing over into sila. And it's not that you're leaving the pure Dharma realms and you have this secondary practice you have to engage in, which is the sila practice. That becomes where mindfulness goes and how concentration and mindfulness developed here go to support higher sila than you've been able to engage with before. And as sort of uh, the language that the Buddha used, he said there are these three trainings, but they're of higher ethical attunement, higher expression of heart, and then higher wisdom, more than what you need to to just get by in ordinary life. So whether you've been here for one month and you're going home or you're going to be here for two months when the retreat, when this form of Dharma ends, you have this unparalleled uh, opportunity to take all the momentum of mindfulness and attunement and orientation back into the world. And for a while, you'll have this empowerment of mindfulness, this empowerment of seeing things like you never saw them before, of seeing how you could do old actions, but like, well, that just starts a whole string of things going. I never knew I had a choice here. And then you'll look people in the eye and they'll look you in the eye. It's like, I just never look at strangers like this, you know, with a loving heart. And so you're, while every moment is important and you're here on retreat, so these are the important moments, this also could be seen as this is a month where every moment's important, but it gives you momentum to leave the nest and fly through the world and actually see what a beautiful heart looks like. So even though there's a tenderness of leaving such protective conditions, there's a courage that you're going to discover that for a while, without even much uh, effort, you'll be in the world, but not of it in terms of the confused, scattered mind, the impatient mind, the mind that's only caught in its errands, but you'll you'll have presence. So just going back to ordinary life, you can see things you couldn't see before. After my first three-month retreat, uh, it ended in December, and I had planned some spaciousness before I went back to work. And so I got to be with my dad. It was pre-Christmas holidays. And so I was just walking with him through malls while he did all this frenetic Christmas shopping. And I just looked around like, wow, this is wild. (laughs) Look at people go in this consumption, this joyful, crazy consumption. And everybody's running around trying to consume and meet other people's needs. And it's like, is anybody watching this? Like... (laughs) wow, I can be here and I can see it, but I'm not of it. But I'm not aloof and judgmental. I can just see this joyful generosity, but it's mixed in with this anxiety if it's commensurate with the love you feel and then people bouncing around and trying to buy something for somebody in one of the mall shops that's indicative of the amount that you love somebody. It's like, wow, what a, what a trip. I was like, I used to do this, and I can feel the impulse to do it, but I can also just drop it. And this is fun, just to walk behind my dad, and he's trying to do this thing, and it's like, wow, I can just be in the world. I remember he was buying books for family members. I was in the bookstore, and I went to their Dharma section, and back then the Dharma sections were small, (laughs) and they were mixed in with other spiritualities or in the (laughs) self-help section. And I was looking at books, and I was like, okay, I've, I've kind of read the ones that are out there, and here's a new one, it's kind of interesting. And I saw somebody who was also looking at spiritual books, and I don't know what came over, it's like, I, what are you looking for? And I could ask him in a way that wasn't uh, like, oh, I know these books, but you know what you're looking for? It's like, I don't know, it just... Everybody is so crazed with this shopping. And I'm over here, I'm I'm hoping there's a book. And it's like, yeah, me too. Me too, I'm hoping there's a book 
but it's just nice to be in the section of the bookstore. He's like, yeah, yeah, just to like look at these titles. I feel like, oh, I can breathe. And I was like, this is sweet. Wow, look at us. We're just two people trying to be sane in the middle of all this consumption. It was a really sweet moment. And so that, I wouldn't have guessed that. I didn't plan that. But there are really sweet Dharma moments that in my planning how I was going to go home, I didn't know there would be such beautiful moments. And they didn't come out of plans. They came out of presence. So you all get to discover that either tomorrow uh, or in a month when two-month people go home. And then you have a window open where you can have this momentum going. And then a month after the retreat, your mind will start looking like how you used it. So if you've been cleaning as you go, the mind stays pretty sweet and you can practice the sweetness and let it be more central to how you go about a day. And if you fall into old habits, you won't fall into all of them, but a habit that is a shortcut and it adds some agitation after a month, it's like, wow, I'm losing some access to what was so precious on retreat. I wonder if there's a way I can look at how I'm living so it's not always going to pull me so far from where my heart wants to be. But you don't have to go back to retreat to find it. You can. It's nice to recouple up with the, the heart of retreat. But every time you go back home, it's a discovery and you'll discover things, ways of being in the world that honor your dharma heart, and you still feel the robes inside, the robes of the retreat, even though you've changed the outside conditions. That same, uh, well, yeah, so the Buddha uh, was talking to monastics, and he gave this simile. And he said, practitioners, a farmer has three urgent duties. What are the three? A farmer swiftly makes sure the field is well plowed and tilled. Next, they swiftly plant seeds in the season. And when the time is right, they swiftly irrigate and drain the field. These are the three urgent duties of the farmer. That farmer has no special power or ability to say, let the crops germinate today. Let them flower tomorrow and let them ripen the day after. But there comes a time when that farmer's crops germinate, flower, and ripen as the seasons change. So he says to the practitioners, in the same way, a practitioner has three urgent duties. What three? They undertake the training of higher ethical attunement, the higher stream of mind, heart, and of higher wisdom. These are the three urgent duties of a dedicated practitioner. That practitioner has no special power or ability to say, let my mind be freed from defilements by not grasping today or tomorrow or the day after. Yet there comes a time as that practitioner trains in the higher ethics, higher mind, and higher wisdom, that their mind is freed from defilements by not grasping. You should train like this. We will have keen enthusiasm for understanding the trainings and ethics, and purity of heart, and of higher wisdom and that's how we should train. So it's not for us to determine when Dharma ripens. Dharma ripens in its own season. And there might be a sense that these were the best conditions and my Dharma didn't ripen, so now I'm afraid of losing the conditions when I go home. And that still can be a very retreat-centric view of what liberation would look like that would have to happen in a pristine setting like this, and that it can't happen out in the world. But most of our life will be out in the world. And even Asian monastics have a lot more contact with the world than we do on these retreats. They're very powerful, but they, uh, they have to be integrated. 
And it's not a letdown that they have to be integrated. It's, it's an expansion of opportunity. And just as the Buddha gave this simile of the farmer, all we can do is tend the conditions and the Dharma ripens in its own season. And how do you know you're tending the conditions where the Dharma of liberation will ripen? It's that you tend to the training of sila. And you make that an important part of your day. You tend to the conditions of samadhi, of letting the heart-mind flow with more ease and coherence, less fragmentation. And you tend to the conditions of wise perspective. If you tend to those conditions, the dharma of liberation ripens fully in its season. Those of us who have practiced long have such faith in that. There's no longer worry if that will ripen because we've seen we tend to the conditions and things ripen. And the timing of the ripen didn't always match to exactly what I was doing that week or that day. And I can see that it was the tending of the conditions of ethical attunement that took out some of the agitation of not being ethically attuned. But that also became a place of ripening, of liberating insight. But it had to come in its season. But it wouldn't have come if I hadn't daily tended to it. And the same with this wholeness of heart, this uh, the heart of samadhi, the heart that is whole, that can give its full attention to one simple thing at a time. That's harder to do in daily life. We have a whole retreat culture here that doesn't split your attention. Although sometimes it does feel like it splits your attention because am I supposed to watch the breath or scan the body? Am I supposed to practice seven factors of awakening or the five uh, the five faculties. It's all about Brahma Viharas, but which Brahma Vihara? And you can start to feel that mind that goes into like, oh my God, there's so many things I have to do and not enough time this day. How I can do it all? That's the mind that's approaching the Dharma like you approach daily life. So ethical attunement, that's part of your work. You won't be in a culture that is so attuned to ethical impact. And so is on us when we're not in collective community that so values harm reduction, removing harm, in well-being cultivation and shared prosperity. So because the dominant culture is a little more fragmented and there's room for hatred and greed coming through, we have to make sure we're at least attending to our own ethical relationships to our immediate environment, and then to our larger environment, as James talked about. We're now seeing how small personal choices add up to a collective disposition, and that collective disposition is graphically harming our environment. The changes that have to be made are on the collective, and that will either come by many individuals choosing, so there's collective impact, or we have to change the way that our culture is organized. Uh, that's ethical attunement, to even open the heart, feel the overwhelm, feel the pain of it, but say, I'm, I'm following this anyhow, as James talked so beautifully about last night. Even if the world were to end tomorrow, I would still do this action because it is right. And that's the heart that... Uh, is doing it because it's oriented towards sila. Much more fragile is a heart oriented to samadhi. And this is, to attune to what samadhi is, it takes time to even find it because it's actually uh, fragile. So mindfulness is more easy when there's a collectivity of heart, a smoothness of experience, so then we can be intimate. But you can bring mindfulness into restlessness, into scatteredness. You get little scattered mindfulnesses that say, wow, this is really scattered and jolting. And I lost it. No, I gained it. And I lost it again. Whoa, this is really agitated. So there can be no samadhi 
and the mindfulness is struggling, but it actually can arise in restless states, in scattered states, in, in uh, weighty states. It can get there, but it's harder. So uh, that's mindfulness, more accessible, but it's done well, and it has an easier time of being mindful when it's supported by samadhi. Samadhi is felt as this more wholeness of attention rather than running two programs at once that's uh, taking care of too many, spinning too many plates at once. It also is this, uh, as the mind gets whole, in samadhi there's also a well-being that is uh, a part of the heart in samadhi. So it doesn't have to be the pleasure of the object that you're attending there becomes a, a well-being because the heart is whole. It's a beautiful thing about our hearts is that as they get whole, they also get well. And that well-being of samadhi uh, lets us have a more homegrown sense of happiness and well-being. It takes much more of a lifestyle to support samadhi. You can have... Uh, difficult lifestyles and be mindful of it. And the mindfulness degrades, but there's still a scrappy mindfulness that can show up in uh, impatient times, in times of irritation, in times of greed. There can be a really intense mindfulness that's trying to see what's happening while it's happening. But to actually feel this well-being of samadhi, it really takes uh, lifestyle changes. There's really no way to have wholeness of heart and the deep well-being that comes from wholeness of heart if your lifestyle doesn't uh, mirror that. And that's hard for us as lay people in this dominant culture. We often do what we can, and there are choices we all can make that some of what we do is just scattered mind making bad choices. Even if your work requires multitasking and a lot of computer work that takes a lot of cognitive power and afterwards you can feel the the exhaustion of that. You can have recovery time if that's the one way that you're meeting your needs. But if you then take that scattered mind and then have scattered entertainment and then have scattered relationships, the mind is less and less content and less satisfied by any one fragment. And so it gets increasingly unsatisfied as the mind fragments. So you need recovery time. And over time, the way you go about your activities can be done with samadhi in mind. And James used the word earlier, instead of multitasking, it's the discipline to monotask. And you can actually do one thing really well with the whole of your attention. So if you write one email with the whole of your attention, you often don't have to go back and re-explain what it was you're trying to say when you're giving it half your attention. And you'll feel, find the words come out in a way where it's much people feel much more connected to, not just because you're ethically attuned, but there's a wholeness of heart engaging in the activity. This can be so powerful that uh, early on when I was practicing, I was also working in shelters for homeless and abused teenagers. And so after a long retreat, which for me at the time was you know, a week long, would just be mind-blowing. And then I'd have to come back and integrate. And I remember walking into the shelter. I didn't know to give myself a buffer day. So I'd go right back in from a retreat like this, walking into the shelter. I was like, oh my God, I have no armor on. And I'm walking in there. There's going to be so much happening. And I just feel naked walking into the shelter. And I... A week ago, I was exhausted, but I like knew what to do. Walked in, took control of the room. People were fighting. I had to separate it. I had to project confidence so that the kids would listen to what I was saying. I'd walk in. I was like, oh, I'm just going to get torn up. But I couldn't. I had to go to work, and I couldn't put the armor back on. And I had enough momentum to walk in the door. If I had been able to put the armor back on, I would have, just to protect myself. But because of the momentum of the retreat, I got to see what it was like to be in the shelter with retreat faculties. And I walked in and I saw people and people were impacted by my energy field. 
And then when I checked in with the kids, I was really present and they didn't have to defend themselves from my projected authority. So they were much more transparent. And I could actually feel what was happening in the room before it boiled over. And I was looking around, I was like, wow, I'm kind of getting everybody in the room. Usually I have to like marshal my attention on one person at a time and then kind of map it out. But it's kind of obvious if you're present, what's going on here? And it's like, wow, this is really wild. This retreat that took away so much of my egoic structure that I was using and getting burned out by, there was a window afterwards where I could be in the homeless shelter. And it's true, it was a little floaty on the first day. And, and I could say, yeah, I could come up to speed a little bit more. But I could handle things like intense phone calls with bereaved and scared parents and then kids coming in and meeting the policemen at the door and they're also stuck in something trying to be good the kids in a weird place and I was like yeah I can so wild I can actually like meet people like I was meeting the breath like I was meeting my salad like all that time doing very simple things collected my heart and then walking into a homeless shelter it was medicine and then I saw as I got into the multitasking trying to be efficient and kind of using some cheap shortcuts to kind of get more done in a day and not protecting my samadhi, my mind looked more agitated after a month, but it didn't go all the way back to... And so every retreat there was ground gained. But I learned that I really have to protect a gentle, patient monotasking or that would degrade the samadhi, which would degrade the mindfulness. And I was only kind of mindfully aware of how much degrading was happening. But mindfulness alone couldn't do all the heavy lifting. I had to have a a cultivation of samadhi. And then when I did, it was medicine for myself. It was medicine for others. And then it can become really deep medicine. So because I was present and sort of egoically relaxed, these homeless kids that are looking for adult help, but every adult is sort of engaging them with their agenda. I saw that I could actually take in kids and I would just keep letting go of my agendas cropping up because I hadn't fully heard what they had to say. And kids were sharing much more deeply. I was like, they never share this much on the first day in the shelter. This is wild. Like this is really a gift of being on the retreat. And this is so much more of what I want to be doing with these homeless kids. And there's something precious happening on retreat that makes me a better shelter care provider. And so this got me really turned on to what then was called socially engaged Buddhism, as opposed to Buddhism that sort of painted you into a corner where it only lived on the cushion on retreat and then made us world weary. But could you take all that was being cultivated on retreat and then be in the world, your ordinary life, but then also courageously in the world and see that you had medicine in your heart that was found on retreat. And so in talking to these homeless kids, much more quickly they would tell me about an aunt or a grandparent or a cousin that they loved and trusted. And it usually take about three or four days before they would tell me that. And by then, they were really scared and the shelter was supportive, but they went through a much longer journey. It's like, hey, could we call your aunt tonight? Do you think that she would take a call? And the kid would feel my own presence, calm. They would calm down a little bit. And I was like, yeah, that would be great. I was like, wow, I'm actually getting this kid to their resources much quicker. But if they don't have them, I'm actually providing some resource of warm adult engagement That's not trying to impose, oh, I already know this is this type of kid, they need this type of plan. Like, no, that's that's not helpful. This kid doesn't need to be processed in that way with my expertise. I have to listen to them much more. And this retreat quality made me a much better listener. And it helped me in my family. It helped me around my friends and my community. But it was really impactful for this type of courageous service I wanted to do. 
And that may be the one thing, again, cultivating samadhi, uh, ethical attunement, being mindful. Samadhi helps with that ethical attunement. Because when your well-being is born out of the well-being of your heart, your heart-mind, it's in more of a well place, not a happy, stimulated place, but there's more intrinsic well-being in your own heart, then you don't need to extract as much well-being from others in the world. So friends can give you an extra lift because the friendship is beautiful, but you also can show up to the friendship already partially, if not fully fed. So then you're using the friendship to lift to higher places, not just to kind of scrape by for through another week. So then uh, cultivating of samadhi in everyday life supports the ability to feel things ethically without getting us overwhelmed. It's like, wow, I'm staying in contact with the feelings of how scared the world can be before I need to do something about it. I like I'm compulsively have to fix it or I need to turn away from it. It's like, I don't even think I've listened as deeply as I'm listening now to what's going on in the world. So all my solutions are kind of shot from the hip and they're opinionated, but I'm not really in contact with the suffering of the world. And I can be in contact because I'm well enough from the samadhi and then the practice of compassion and finding the samadhi and compassion to be well enough to hear it. And then the responses come from deeper in your heart versus just a quick fix mentality. And all of this ripens into living with more wise perspective. You know, every year you're a year older and you have another year of reflecting on life that you didn't have last year. What's the amazing is that if I could tell myself where I was last year, things, some hints, I might have navigated this year, but a year from now, if I'm still alive, I'll know things because of this year that I don't know now. And so this could be a year of learning and the year of living on the planet with a little more perspective. I went to my uh, 30th high school reunion a few years ago and everybody had grown up. <laughs> I was like, you guys aren't, I knew factually you would not be the same people I'm left in high school, but you're all wiser. And it made me wonder, like, have I been fooling myself that I'm on this big wisdom journey? Because <laughs> everybody's wiser. Like, every, none of you were stuck as you were in high school. Life has made you wiser. So that was, that was illuminating that everybody is a year older, so possibly everybody is a, a year more oriented to life. But some people are still enchanted by the view that selfishness and greed for oneself or one's family is a good thing. And then people are not as committed uh, in, ordinary, in the ordinary world uh, to be careful around putting even small amount of hatred in motion or small amount of greed in motion or sullying your samadhi with activities that don't honor your heart. So then every year you're older, but if you pay attention, the world teaches you how it works and you learn about human hearts and human minds, personally and others and collectively. So we can participate more with wisdom, with more wise perspective. I'll end with a quote here from uh, the same nun that I quoted earlier describe these three trainings. There was a, there is a collection of poems from the early practitioners kept in the Pali Canon. And it's of some of their first awakening moments of, or of their final awakening moment. And it's a very beautiful translation by one of our community members named Maddie Weingast. And the way he translated was not necessarily as accurate Poly to English, but he, the way he translated captured uh, the heart space of all of these poems. 
And if you could read Pali, you'd get both. So we have to sometimes choose in English. But this is from uh, Venerable Damadina, who was an elder in the nuns community at the time of the Buddha. And this particular poem, he translated the title of it. Uh, and it could be a translation of her name, Dhamma Dina. And the translation could be, she who has given herself to the Dhamma. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. So the river here, obviously, is a metaphor for our Dharma stream and that it, it has an end of liberation. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sun rise over the eastern hills, only to find myself floating somehow gently upstream. I promise it was not what I expected. For so long, I thought only of the river's end. Then one morning, I set my paddle down to watch the sunrise over the eastern hills, only to find myself somehow floating gently upstream. I promise it was not what I expected. If we tend to sila, samadhi, and panya with our ordinary best, we're tending to the conditions that liberate us. And when the moment of liberation happens, it may not because we did it finally right, but it was the time of ripening of the Dhamma. Let's sit for a moment and let that settle into a faith and patience channel. It really is, while breathing in, I was aware I was breathing in. While breathing out, I was aware I was breathing out. And I practiced with the spirit of letting go. We have a last night to practice together or be on campus together. So uh, savor it, not in a clingy way, but in an appreciating gratitude way. So practice on.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.